A quick reminder, prayer tomorrow morning, 7 to 7.30. Love to see y'all. Kind of the theme is this idea of refuge. If that sounds like something that you could use, we'd love to see it between 7 and 7.30. It's real casual, low-key, but a great way to start your week. Uh, Can't really apologize if something's in the Bible, but if I could, I would apologize for Genesis 19. It's not going to be, I'll just, it's not going to be enjoyable for any of us. I'm probably going to enjoy it less than you will, so if that helps you. But this is part of going all the way through the Bible as I can't skip. So Genesis 19, if you remember last week, uh, David left off. God and two angels come down. They say the, the cry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. So they're coming to see what's going on. And in chapter 19 is how they deal uh, with Sodom and Gomorrah. So I'm going to read through the whole chapter, make a few clarifying comments as we go, and then see if there's anything we can pull out uh, for our situation. When the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city, the gateway would have been the place where the elders and the leaders would have gathered. Uh, When uh, Lot saw these angels, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My Lord, uh, that's not a sign of um, reverence, just respect. He did not know there were angels at this point. My Lord, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. But Lot insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them and uh, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. So that's a clue that things are not well in Sodom. So the town square should be a safe place to stay. Lot knows it's not. Uh, Lot is a resident alien, so it should not have been his responsibility to try to find a place for these guys to stay that should have fallen to someone in the city. Nobody does that, so um, already some clues that this is not going to go well uh, for anybody. Uh, Before they'd gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, so that's, we're talking not literally everyone, but the picture there is this is a city-wide issue. This is not a few isolated individuals. All the men from every part of the city, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. That's repugnant to most of us. We think of this this picture of a man offering his daughters to a mob and we're going, "What, what is he thinking and... He's not. He has a responsibility for these strangers who's in his house. Part of his responsibility is to protect them. So he goes outside and shuts the door. He's trying to make a barrier between the, the, the gang and the guys. And he doesn't know what to do. Rock in a hard place. He's just throwing out ideas. I don't think it reveals anything about his heart other than he's in a terrible situation and does not know what he's supposed to do. Get out of our way, the crowd replied. This fellow comes here as a foreigner. That's Lot. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city? Who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against its people is so great that he sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry, 
and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you'll be swept away. Let me stop there. That idea of don't look back is going to come up again. Um, when we think of that, we think, oh, I'm running away. Don't do this. That's not the idea behind that. Don't look back really speaks to lagging behind, having a longing for what you've left. So it's more like stopping and turning around and saying, this is actually what I want, not this. It's a much stronger word than, again, just this idea of running away and taking a quick glance over your shoulder. It really has to do with a heart posture that says, I don't want to leave. But Lot said to them, No, my Lord, speaking to the angels again, Please, your servant has found favor in your eyes. You've shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here's a town near enough to run to, and it's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. The angel said to Lot, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I can't do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. That means small. By the, time, by the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities in the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Pause there again. That's that idea of looking back again. Same phrase, not a quick glance over the shoulder lagging behind, not wanting to leave. She was a local. He had married her. She was from Sodom. She didn't want to leave. That was in her heart. There's a picture. They say that's her, that little pillar there. I think it's like 20 feet high. They say that is her. There's some scientific thing with volcanic ash and um, rock salt, not like what you use to make ice cream, but rock salt that can do that. You can read up on that. It's too complicated for us to talk about. Or you can just say, God turned her into a pillar of salt. If you want to say, ah, did that really happen? Jesus takes some of the, to me, the most far-fetched episodes in the Old Testament, and he quotes them just to say, you can't get out of this stuff. Uh, Luke 17, 26, he says, remember Lot's wife. So for Jesus, she turned into a pillar of salt, and she serves as a reminder to everybody, hey, don't, when it's time to go, it's time to go. You don't want to drag your feet. You don't want to... Um, Walk slowly, you don't want to kind of pine for a, a sinful path. When it's time to leave, it's time to leave. So that's Lot's wife. By the time Lot reached, uh, where am I? 27, early the next morning, Abraham got up, returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So that was confirmation for Abraham. There weren't ten righteous people. God said, if there's ten, I won't destroy it. He gets up and sees the whole thing burning. He knows there's not ten righteous. I don't know at that point if Abraham knows if Lot has gotten out or not. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. There's that idea. Those who are connected to Abraham will be blessed. And so that worked out in Lot's favor. Unfortunately, it doesn't get any better for him. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar, and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. 
He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father's old, and there's no man around here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine, and the older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down and when she got up. The next day the older daughter said to the younger, Last night I slept with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you can go in and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also, and the younger daughter went in and slept with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son and named him Moab. He's the father of the Moabites today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami, and he is the father of the Ammonites today. Those two tribes, you'll see them throughout the Old Testament. Initially, uh, there's some... Uh, grace shown to them because of their connection to Abraham. Over time, they continue to cause problems for the Israelites and their relationship sours. Uh, I guess in terms of something redemptive, Ruth, who's the great-grandmother of David, comes from the tribe of Moab. But it's a, this, is, this is it for Lot. This is the last that we read of him um, in the Old Testament, devastating end to his life, alone in a cave with these two, his two daughters and these sons slash grandsons of his Uh, and that that's how it ends we don't know why he doesn't try to connect back with Abraham there's no indication that he does we don't know why he doesn't try to give his daughters uh, away to people in Abraham's uh, tribe We uh, we don't know any of that he just appears to have when he left it just appears that he was completely devastated and crushed and and really lived in fear and disgrace for the rest of his life so again great I'm sure you're glad you're here this morning to hear that question for us, what does that have to do with us? So is whatever you think of your city, however you want to define that, if you want to define that literally as Marietta or Kennesaw or Ackworth, wherever you live, if you want to define that as the place where you work or your neighborhood, whatever's kind of your territory, no matter how bad you think it is, it's not Sodom. Sodom was proverbially, I messed that word up at nine too, it was legendarily wicked. Terrible. All the way through. Whatever you think However unrighteous you feel like your place is, this is worse. And so for us, it's like, well, then what, what's the deal? How does this connect to us? Last week, one of the things David said was, if you're willing uh, to engage, then you can make an impact. If you're willing to engage, you can make an impact. And he looked at Abraham and said Abraham was a man of integrity, and Abraham had a heart for a particular area, and then he asked God to work, and God did. That's the positive side. Our vision as a church is community transformation. We want to see the places where God has planted us uh, transformed to look more and more like his kingdom. And so the positive side of that is Genesis 18. We can look at that and go, yes, there's hope. If I'm willing to be engaged, then I can make an impact. i be a person of integrity. I want to have a connection to the place God's called me. I want to ask him to get involved and things can happen. Genesis 19 is maybe the shadow side of community transformation. It's a cautionary tale for us of how it can get off track. So let me give you a few things that are black and white, objectively true, and then I'm going to speculate a bit, and and you'll know when I get to that part. So objectively true, uh, Lot moved closer and closer to the center of Sodom. In 13.12, chapter 13, verse 12, Abraham realizes this, we've got too much livestock, the land can't hold us, Lot, where do you want to go? And Lot made a choice to move outside of the land of Canaan, which was the land that God had promised to them, and to move towards Sodom is what it says. Um, uh, Chapter 13, verse 12 says he pitched his tents near Sodom. So he lives right on the outskirts of the city. 
And then in 1412, we read that Lot has moved into the city. And then in 19.1, we see that he's seated uh, with the leadership. Now, he's not a leader. We saw the way they treated him. He had no influence. They said, you're a foreigner. We're going to do worse to you than we do to these guys. So he did not have influence with them. But maybe because of his wealth, he was allowed to be on the periphery of this decision-making process. So objectively true, Lot moved closer and closer to the center of Sodom. Objectively true, Lot lost almost everything. Almost everything he had, he lost uh, in this process uh, of living in Sodom. He started off, he was loaded. Livestock, people, gold. That's how money was uh, measured, and he had all of it. He leaves with nothing but the shirt on his back. He loses his wife in the process. He loses, uh, both of his daughters lose their fiancés in the process, and he winds up in a cave alone, kind of that picture with his daughters and these kids of his. That's how he ends. He loses almost everything. And again, I don't know if it was disgrace or shame or what, but he's unwilling to reconnect with his uncle who had taken care of him, raised him in a lot of ways. And Lot is unwilling, unable emotionally to reconnect with Abraham. He's lost everything. And Sodom was legendarily wicked. That's another thing that's true. When Sodom is mentioned, when Lot says, when the Bible says Lot moves near Sodom in 1312, there's a little parenthetical note in chapter, in verse 13 that says, it's a bad place. It says, is that up there? Not yet. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. In Jude, the New Testament, referring back to Sodom, talks about how detestable the practices were. They gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. And then in Ezekiel 16, describes some sins of Sodom beyond the homosexuality, they were arrogant, they were overfed, they were unconcerned, they didn't help the poor and needy, they were haughty and did detestable things before me. Now, I'm going to push pause and come over here and talk about homosexuality for a minute. Not the point of this message, but there is a, there's a line of interpretation that's being pushed that says the sin of Sodom was um, a lack of hospitality. That's why God rained fire and brimstone down. It's because they were not hospitable. It's this Ezekiel passage. They were arrogant. They were not kind to the poor. And, and the thing that pushed, kind of straw that broke the camel's back, was they were not hospitable to these two men. Which is okay, true, but let's talk about what that lack of hospitality looked like. It looked like gang rape. And so to not say that is a reductionist. You're missing the point. Kind of can't see the forest for the trees at that point. There was rampant homosexuality in Sodom. Every man, young and old, all across town. Moses, who wrote Genesis, wants us to see this is a pervasive problem. This is not isolated to one or two people. Now, homosexuality is not the unforgivable sin. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Homosexuality is not in a class all by itself in terms of sinful behavior. People who struggle or wrestle or even fully and openly engage in homosexual behavior are not like, they're not in danger of God raining fire down on them any more than people who are liars or greedy or covetous are in danger of God raining fire down on them. We all stand under the judgment of God for our sins, and the blood of Jesus forgives us and cleanses us of all of those sins. Now, what I will say about that. Very clearly in the Bible, sex is reserved for marriage, and marriage is defined as a man and a woman. That goes back to the creation account. That's Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall. It doesn't have anything to do with what's written in Leviticus or Romans, although both of those things are great. Genesis 1 and 2, sex is reserved for marriage. Marriage is defined as a man or a woman. Any sex outside of the confines of 
marriage between a man and a woman, by definition, is sinful. So if it's homosexual activity, well, that's not sex within a marriage defined as a man and a woman. So it's sinful. Adultery, that's not sex within a marriage defined as a man and a woman. So it's sinful. If you're dating or if you're engaged, that's not sex in a marriage defined as a man and a woman. So it's sinful. They all fall under, all sexual sins fall under the same umbrella. This is the rule. This is the way it's supposed to be. Sex reserved for marriage, marriage defined as a man and a woman. Anything that doesn't fall into that category, by definition, is sinful. And so there's not, they're not grades of sexual sin, one way or the other. There's, here's the context for sex, marriage, man and a woman, and everything else is, by definition, out of bounds, therefore sinful. You don't have to get hung up on anything else. Very clearly stated in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And that's where we stand biblically on the whole issue of sexuality. Not talking about civil unions or rights, none of those things. What I'm talking about is biblically, what's the context for sex? Marriage defined as a man and a woman. Now, we all know people and love people who are either struggling with homosexuality or fully engaged in it. To me, what is extraordinarily difficult is trying to figure out how do you wade through those waters when if the question that comes back is I'm supposed to be miserable for the rest of my life or God made me this way and I don't know what to say. I don't know if you have to be miserable, but you do have to be celibate, which is the same thing I would say to a single person. You don't have to be miserable, but you have to be celibate until you get married. That's the context, the only context for sexual expression. Now, is it a sin to be attracted to someone who's the same sex as you? Absolutely not. It's a sin to act on it. Just like if you're married, is it a sin to be attracted to someone other than your spouse? No. Is it a sin to act on it? Absolutely. If you're single, is it a sin to be attracted to someone of the opposite sex? No. But can you act on it? No. Not sexually. You can't. The attraction is not the sin. It's the acting on it. That's a sin. Easy for me to say. And if you, that's an area where you wrestle, or if you love someone who wrestles with that, it can be very difficult to know how to navigate those waters. My encouragement to you is just to stand firmly on this is the, this is the only place biblically for a healthy, godly, righteous expression of your sexuality. Within a marriage, God defines marriage as a man and a woman. It doesn't matter what the state says a marriage is. What God says is a marriage is between a man and a woman, and that's the only place. So... Uh, for good on that, just to be clear, that was a huge issue in Sodom. It was one of the reasons God overthrew the city. Not the only one, but it was a huge issue, and it was rampant throughout the town. So, Lot moves closer to the center of Sodom. Sodom is terribly, legendarily wicked, and Lot eventually loses everything. One more thing. Lot is righteous. How about that? This is 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8. And if God rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed, that is, who was exhausted or who was worn out by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man, Lot, living among them day after day, was tormented or was put to the test in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. So three times in two verses, Lot's described as righteous. I think Lot was a doofus. But my name, it's not Second David, it's Second Peter. That's what, if I gave you three adjectives, how many of you pick righteous? How many of you give him that? Particularly based on what he did with his daughters. None of you saying he's righteous. None of us are. At the best, we say he's 
adult. And at the worst, we say he's wicked. But the Bible, if you believe it's inspired, then this is from the heart of God. Lot was righteous. And God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't say he was righteous compared to the other people in Sodom. It just says he was righteous. Lot was righteous. Three times in two verses. He's worn out and exhausted living in Sodom around all of these lawless people. His soul is being tested by the lawlessness that he experienced every day. So he moves closer to the center of Sodom. We know that. We know Sodom is terribly wicked. And Lot had to know that pretty quick. If he didn't know it before, he knew it once he moved near. Once he lived, once he made the move in 1312 and he was living on the outskirts, if it was as bad as the Bible says, if the outcry reached heaven, then it definitely reached outside the walls of the city. Lot knew. And he continued to move closer and closer in, even to the point of trying to engage with the leaders. And we know he lost everything in the process of whatever it was he was doing there. But the verdict, of the Bible, the New Testament verdict, the verdict of God on Lot is righteous. So what about if we look at this from a different perspective? What if Lot, as a righteous man, come, moves near Sodom, and he sees, witnesses, just the depravity of this culture, and he says, I'm going to do something about it. This is terrible, and I'm going to, this isn't the way it should be. I'm We don't have any evidence biblically of Lot's relationship with God. We know he had a relationship with Abraham who had a relationship with God. So at least tangentially, Lot had something to do with Yahweh. Maybe there was something there. And he said, you know what, I'm going to engage with this city. And it's better for me to be inside the city. Missions 101. You can't do mission work from the compound. You've got to get involved with the locals. You've got to live life with them. They've got to know you're a part of their experience. So he moves from outside the city to the inside the city. And then he says, if I'm going to have influence here, it's got to be with the leaders. And so, again, they never accept him, but he at least makes a play somehow to begin to engage with the leaders of Sodom, all for the sake of saying, I want to see this place transformed. What if that was his motivation? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say that. All I know is the Bible says he was righteous. And so saying, going from Lot is righteous and looking at what happened, I'm just speculating. What if that's what's going on in Lot's heart? What we would say is he was a massive failure. Totally. There weren't ten righteous people in the, in the community. We don't know how long he lived there. He, had, he sort of had his wife. Not really. She didn't make it out. He had his two daughters. That was it. He couldn't even convince their fiancés to leave with him. Not even those guys took him seriously. He was a complete failure when it came to transforming his community. And then we also see personally he lost everything almost. He was a failure in that regard as well. And as people who hopefully are committed to seeing our communities transformed, I look at that and go, how do we not do that? How do we avoid, I don't want to be in a cave. How do I avoid that fate? How do we actually have a positive impact in our community instead of when it comes time to exercise influence, they say, you're not one of us. Who brought you here? We're going to treat you worse than we're treating these other guys. How do we impact our community in a way that doesn't cost us everything that God has given to us? There's sacrifices for the kingdom, absolutely. That's not what Lot experienced. Those weren't sacrifices for the kingdom. It all burned up because God judged it. Completely different scenario. A couple of things. There's a subtlety to sin that I think it's easy to uh, overlook. That's why it's subtle. It's easy to miss the subtlety of sin. And I think 
sin got a hold in Lot's heart. Now, he was still righteous. God delivered him. He did not judge him with the wicked. Therefore, we can say, yeah, he's righteous. The New Testament confirms that. He was righteous. God delivered him from punishment. It's a picture of salvation. We're saved from the wrath of God. Sodom and Gomorrah experienced the wrath of God, his just anger and punishment for their sin. Lot was delivered from that. He was saved, is what we would say, from the wrath of God. So he's righteous in that regard. But it was difficult for him. What does it say when it was time to leave? He hesitated. The angels had to grab his hand and pull him out. And then they said, go to the mountains. He's like, no, let me, let me go over here. Let me go to this. It's just a small city. Don't worry about it. Let me just live there. And we don't know why he chose not to go to the mountains. He eventually gets there because he's afraid of the people of Zoar. But initially, it's like he can't quite bring himself to separate from what's going on from Sodom. He, he can't do that. Again, there's this hesitation in his heart where the angels are like, come on, we've got to get because bad stuff's about to happen. James 1 says this about sin. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. After desires conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So we've got desire which gives temptation a foothold or a handhold. And then if you give in to temptation, you've got sin. Over time, sin get, leads to death. So you've got that desire, gives temptation a handhold. Then if you give in to temptation, you've got sin. Sin over time leads to death. This is a long-term progression. This is not a one-time deal. This, this is a progression over time. Let me give you something on the front end of that that I think actually um, kind of stokes or... or plants the seed for all of this, and it's dissatisfaction. I'm just going to use that word. It's a dissatisfaction with where you are in life can lead then to this desire being aroused or stoked in you. Not all desires are bad, but some are. You're beginning to covet what someone else has, or whether that's materially, relationally, experientially, in any way. If you're beginning to covet something that God has not given to you, that whole idea of Psalm I think 16, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, and I start looking at other people's plots of land, what God has given them in their life, and I begin to covet that. I become dissatisfied with what he's given to me. Then that's when that desire kicks in, which makes me vulnerable to temptation and sin, and then ultimately death. Not being content or satisfied, maybe content's a better word, not being content with what God has given me, with my lot in life, becoming uh, dissatisfied with that can stoke desire in me, an unholy desire, a covetousness, not just for stuff tangibly, but also um, intangible things, relationships or success or whatever that looks like, which then opens me up for temptation, which can lead to sin, which ultimately will breed death in me. So if we look just at, take Sodom, the primary sin of Sodom was sexual in nature, if we look at that for us, real quick template to drop on your life. Dissatisfaction if you're married with your spouse. That's, how, that's where affairs begin. I'm not satisfied with the one who God has given to me. I don't notice the 95% of the things that are wonderful. I notice the 5% that bother me. The 5% that I've decided are lacking in some way. Very easy over time. Nobody has an affair on their honeymoon. We're fully satisfied with our spouse in those early days over time, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Very easy to begin to focus on what's missing, not what's there. 
that dissatisfaction then opens me up for, for covetousness. I begin to look for that whatever that is that I deem missing. I begin to look for that in someone else, which opens me up for temptation, ultimately to sin, which can bring death to my marriage. That's the way it works. It's very subtle. It's drawn out over time. People don't decide in an instant to have an affair. It's years in the making. The enemy is extraordinarily patient. He plants the seeds early on, and if those things aren't dealt with when they're really small weeds, eventually they become almost impossible to control because the kind of the die has been cast in some ways, not in a fatalistic sense, but once we start moving with velocity uh, towards something like an affair, it can be very difficult to pull up. And so you want to notice early on, are you satisfied with your spouse? And if the answer is no, let me, hear me say this, the issue is with you, not with your spouse. If you're not satisfied with the one God has given you, that's a you problem, not a them problem. The solution is to not try to change them. The solution is for you to ask God how to love them. That's the posture that you need to take. Misty and I did premarital counseling with a a guy in Anderson, South Carolina. He said most people spend the first 10 years of their marriage trying to change one another, trying to figure out how can I make you more like what I want you to be. It's the complete wrong approach. If you're not satisfied, it's you, not them. And you need to recognize that's the beginning. That's the beginning. That's going to open the door for you to be one, that desire to kick in. I want someone else. And it may be something that in your mind you deserve. But again, it's irrelevant because it's going to lead to temptation, which is going to lead to sin, which is going to lead to death. That's the inevitability, barring the grace of God, breaking in. If you're engaging in dating behaviors and you're married, no good with other people. You know what I'm talking about, extra time in front of the mirror in the morning uh, because of who you're going to see that day. That's a dating behavior. I want you to notice me looking my best. Changing my routine so I run into somebody, that's a dating behavior. I want to run into you. But that's all of that type of behavior, if you're engaging in that, if you're having conversations with a member of the opposite sex and you're not sharing those conversations with your spouse, all of those things are massive red flags that say you're moving in a slippery slope. And you may say, I haven't crossed any lines. So what I would say is it's way back there. And you, pat, you didn't even notice it. So easy for us to justify. If that's you today, hear me loud and clear. Throw up a flag and say, help me. If you were going to stop on your own, if you could do that, you probably would have by now. You need help. You need somebody to step in and intervene, help you intervene. In that situation, it can be difficult. The easiest thing is to bury it and say, well, she'll never know, he'll never know. It's better this way. But again, if those things aren't dealt with, they can just fester over time and strengthen. And then in a moment of weakness, because you haven't dealt with it when it was a weed, it kind of comes back full force. If you're single, whether that's uh, single, whether that's dating, whether that's engaged, same type deal. It's, it's a little actually, in some senses, it's, the difficulty is, is, is different, maybe even trickier in some ways, because if you're single and you desire to be married, you're going to be dissatisfied in some ways with being single, and it's because you desire companionship, you desire a marital relationship. But what my encouragement to you is, is contentment, is to fully live life as a single person. Don't waste your singleness pining for married life. You're not being content. That level of dissatisfaction that causes you to covet something that you don't yet have. It's going to rob you of life as a single man or a single woman. It's going to complicate any dating relationship that you do 
enter into. And it's, again, it's going to cause you to lose the things that God's trying to do in you or through you right now. So my encouragement to you is to take full advantage of whatever situation you're in. If you're dating, look at all the good things about dating. Don't focus on what it's going to be like when you're engaged. If you're engaged, focus on all the good things about being engaged. Don't think about when you're married. And if you're married, you focus on all the good things about being married. Don't think about, I I remember when we were dating. It was so good. Don't do that. That's not being satisfied with where you are. And that's the beginning of all of this stuff that we read in James. If you're single, dating, engaged. Let me just say this. I talk to people all of the time. None of them go to this church. All the people all the time who are sleeping together actively, either dating or engaged. It makes no sense to me at all how you can expect God to bless a relationship when you're living completely contradictory to the way he said, here's how I want you to do this. It doesn't mean he can't. It doesn't mean you're doomed to failure. I just don't get it. I don't get how people can say, I'm looking for God to bless what we're doing here. I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I'm being led by the Spirit, and I'm actively sleeping with my boyfriend, girlfriend, fiancé. When you're engaged, you kind of get the, well, we're going to be married soon anyway. And what I say to them is, I will marry you right now. Right now. If y'all can't stop this, then let's go ahead and get married. You never want your intimacy to outstrip your commitment. Commitment provides the safety for intimacy. The highest level of commitment is marriage. The highest level of intimacy is sex. They go hand in hand. So if you're just planning on getting married, then all you can do is plan on having sex. It's just the way it works. Or your intimacy has outstripped your commitment. It's created an unsafe environment for that level of intimacy, and it's going to make your relationship very difficult. It's going to make it very difficult for that relationship to flourish and grow. Easy for me to say. It can be difficult to live out, especially in a society where there are all relation, relational um, sense, to me, has been lost. All the lines have been erased. And everything is about what kind of makes me happy in the moment. Very difficult to hold to a biblical line on relationships. So my encouragement to you, if you're single, if you're dating, if you're engaged, if, if you've crossed some lines, again, throw up the flag, ask for help. It's difficult to kind of put the toothpaste back in the tube, but you can with God's help. And my encouragement to you is to say, I'm going to live and date and be engaged with purity from here until we get married. And again, if that just can't happen for you, come see me and we'll do a wedding. It's fine. And we can go ahead and do that and you can remove that temptation towards unrighteousness. So, the subtlety of sin, it makes me go. Lot. What are the sins, how about this? What are the sins of your city, however you want to define that? Easy to look at Sodom and Gomorrah and say, this is a primary sin, this sexual sin, and we can see how that would worm its way in. We just talked about that. What are the sins of your city? For me, I feel called towards Marietta. And so I think about it. We've got all kinds of problems, but one of the things I see at the root is there's this weird, it's not weird, it's demonic, relational um, it's, a, it's a cycle almost. There's this, there's this perceived inner group that nobody knows who's in it. They just know, people just know I'm not. And so there's this constant pressure to try to get from outside to inside. And anyone who I would say you're in the group feels like they're not. That's what makes me think it's demonic is nobody ever feels like they're in. Everybody feels like they're out trying to get in. 
and it creates this superficiality and competitive spirit in relationships that keeps people from being real and genuine with anything, which then leads to busted up marriages and busted up finances and busted up personal lives because nobody can share the areas where we're struggling because if I'm struggling, then you're not going to let me in to this thing that I think you're in and you think you're not in. And so you're doing the same thing. There's no relational comfort. There's no authenticity. There's no genuineness at all. Everybody, we're just looking. Where, where, where do I fit? And how do I move someplace else? And I have to ask myself, has that sin wormed its way into my heart? If that's one of the, if that's, if, if Lot is a cautionary tale for us, it's recognizing that culture has influence on us. We don't just influence culture. And the enemy is subtle. And so, have those cultural sins attached themselves to me in some way? What are the cultural sins? What are the sins of your city, however you want to define that? If it's your place of business, if it's your industry, if it's your neighborhood, if it's your school, if it's the PTA, whatever you identify as, that's my place. What are the sins of that place? If God were to judge it the way, if he said, hey, the cry of blank has risen up to me, like it did with Sodom and Gomorrah, if he came down, what's he coming to investigate in your city? Do you even know what that is? If you don't, then you are ripe for the picking. If you can't, and this is not, don't hear this as criticism, but if you can't identify the works of the devil in the place where he's planted you, then how in the world can you ever hope to not fall prey to those tactics? If you don't even know what they are. If, you don't even, if you're not even aware of how he's taking people out, how in the world can you ever feel protected? that you're not going to fall into those same traps and snares. That's not to scare you. It's just to say, you, we need to ask, God, what's happening here? Jesus, First John, he's described one of his purposes for coming, to destroy the works of the devil. So we want to, that's what he's come to do. And so we want to say, what are those? What are the works of the devil in Marietta, in Kennesaw, in Ackworth, in surveying and engineering, in construction, in Marietta City Schools, in whatever the things are, wherever your thing is, what are the works? And are those things attaching themselves to me in some way? There's encouragement from Lot. It only takes a few. How many did God look for? Ten. It's nothing. We got more than ten. We got 20 times that. Just in this one room. It doesn't take a lot to make a huge impact. Tim Keller, pastor of a church in Manhattan, Redeemer Presbyterian. He's not, not in the Bible. He's a smart guy. He's got a lot of experience. 10% of a community. That's all it takes to impact culture. Just 10%. 5,700 people in Marietta. 5,000 in Smyrna. 2,000 in Ackworth. 3,000 in Kennesaw. 7,000 for Cobb County. That's it. That's nothing. I guarantee you there's more than 70,000 people in church right now. 100%. Well, actually, it's after 12, so there's not. An hour ago, there was more than 70,000 people in church in Cobb County. That's it. Not just people in church, people who are committed to him. Matthew 13, 33, just a little bit of yeast works all the way through the dough. It's easy for us to get, to get, uh, to isolate and feel like we're the only ones. Elijah, this is it, and I'm wrapping up. Elijah has this massive encounter with these pagan prophets of Baal, and he wins. Like, God comes through and wipes in, in a miraculous, very tangible, visible way. Then Elijah kills all these pagan prophets. 
And then Jezebel, as the wicked queen, says, I'm going to do to you what you did to them. And Elijah gets scared and takes off. And then he starts getting kind of depressed and a little whiny. God, it's just me. I'm the only one. There's nobody else out here. Nobody else. And what God says to him, he says, you're not even close to the only one. There's 7,000 people who I've preserved and reserved, who've never bowed down to Baal, never kissed him. There's always a remnant. And so for whatever place God has called you to, you may feel like you're the only one, but you're not. Seven is a number of perfection, completeness. There's a number there. There are people. They may not be in this room, but they're people who God has called. It's not just you. Even if you're a pioneer, it's not just you. There are others who God is calling as well. And so we look at Lot as a cautionary tale and say, I want to make sure that I don't... I don't, the sins of my city don't attach to me in that way, that I recognize how subtle the enemy is. And I want to be a man of prayer and recognize the battle is spiritual, much more than physical. And so I've got to constantly be asking God to get involved. I want to recognize the power of community. One grain of salt doesn't do anything. There's got to be more. If we're to be salt and light, you, you pour a whole bunch on there, don't you? Lot had terrible odds. He went by himself, didn't even have a family, and he married people from the town. He had no reinforcements. We want to be a body, a community, recognizing you're not the only one, even if you feel like it. You need to ask God to show you who else is here. Who else have you called to this place? It's not just you. And we want to be people who walk in the Spirit. It's one thing Lot did not have access to. The Holy Spirit had not been poured out because Jesus had not died and been raised. And so for us... Greater is he, 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he who lives in us than he who lives in the world. So we don't have to be scared. We just need to be aware that we have an enemy, and he's really good at what he does. He masquerades as an enemy, as an angel of light. I want to recognize his sole purpose in life is to steal and kill and destroy every good thing that God wants to do, and that includes us, which doesn't make me scared. It just means I need to be aware knowing that I have all of the resources of heaven available to me because the Holy Spirit lives within me. Let's pray. Sorry, it's 1233, so this is what we're going to do. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to dismiss you, and we're also going to have ministry. And so if if one of these labels, categories fits you, I want you to uh, come forward and receive prayer, even as everybody else is um, being dismissed. And if you're leaving, just uh, try to be quiet until you get out the doors. That would be wonderful. God, we thank you that you invite us to be involved and engaged in what you're doing in our community. I pray for people who go, I don't have a clue what my city is. I don't even know what you're talking about. Lord, I pray that you would burden them with a place where it's probably where they already are. But that you would burden them with that place and with those people. And they would say, this is it. This is my city. This is my Marietta. This is the place where I want to see God's kingdom come. It may be a physical space. It may be... Um, an industry, it may be an area of influence in our community like schools. I, I don't know. I just pray for that burden for every man and woman in this room that we would know where you've planted us and what you're calling us to. And God, I pray we'd be effective. I pray n- we would be Abraham and not Lot. God, I pray that we would see our communities change. And I pray, God, that we wouldn't lose everything in the process, not in terms of saying we don't want to sacrifice But God, we don't want it all burned up in judgment, for sure. God, I want to pray for 
single men and women in this room who are desiring marriage and that you would pull, draw them into those relationships quickly. God, I want to pray for engaged men and women in this room that they would, be, that they would date and be engaged with purity. For married men and women in this room, God, if there are any who are already walking down the road towards an affair, would you convict them deeply and strongly even now? And would their desire for purity override their sense of shame or guilt? God, we don't want the enemy to sabotage the good things that you're trying to do in us and through us. To bring conviction where that's needed, encouragement and hope where that's needed, and power in all of these places. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's what we're going to do. You guys can stand. If you're single and you desire to be married, we'd love to pray with you. If you're wondering where God has called you and don't know, we'd love to pray with you. And if you're willing, and I know this is a tricky one to come forward for, but if if you're married and you're thinking, hey, this, this thing's getting a little rocky for us, we would love to pray for God to shore that up. So y'all can stand. Ministry teams come forward. The rest of y'all are dismissed together.